Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to coach and CEO at Altis, Stu McMillan. Tune in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So five years in the making since I first contacted Stu to come on the podcast, we have a forced gap in Stu's diary, which allow, has allowed him to come on and have a chat. So a really cool episode with Stu, as expected. And I took some questions on Twitter, which I tried my best to incorporate into the chat. So we chatted team sport athletes versus sprinters and how to train them if we do train them any differently how he maximizes transfer um, from the gym out onto the out onto the track or out onto the field. And we also discussed some of the stories around um, Stu's experience, obviously coming through um, working with British Athletics and then the journey at Altis. So all around incredible experience speaking to Stu from someone of his experience and his knowledge um, and wisdom in this area. So if you're involved in team sports or uh, track and field, this is definitely an episode that you will want to hear and will be hanging on the edge of, hanging on the edge of your seat from the minute one to minute 90. So uh, thanks for tuning in and it'll be an episode that you love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Stu McMillan. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. This evening, I am delighted to welcome Stu McMillan. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me uh, me on. And thanks for all you do in the podcast space. I've been a big fan and listening uh, to your podcast for years now. So I appreciate it and appreciate you taking the time to bring me on. 
Oh, thank you very much. It's um, it's been a long time coming. It's been a long time stalking, but thank you for <laughs> thank you for taking this time to come on and, and have a chat. And it's um, it's been one that I've I must admit a little bit nervous because of uh, of what you've done in in the past, oh, and and firstly, and mostly how long I've been stalking you to uh, to actually get the most out of your time. But I, I put it on Twitter about some questions that um, that people wanted me to to pose to you. So I've tried to tried to um, put these in 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 the discussion points that we've discussed so um hopefully it gets uh, what people what people want from you so first of all anyone that doesn't know who you are do you just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself your education um we'll go into the altis thing a little bit later on but what you've uh, your position at altis uh, and how that all came around uh well i started as an ssc coach um like most coaches i ended up just uh, starting in my career as a failed athlete I had. Uh, I grew up in England. I was a footballer. I had dreams of being a professional footballer. Moved to Canada when I was 12. Um, got over there, and my dad was a coach. He was also a footballer back when we lived in Scotland. He played semi-professional over there. So when we got to Canada, he's he wanted to stay and maintain involved in in the sports as as a coach. And then through him, I started coaching when I was 14, coaching an under 11 team. So. You know, while I was still playing, obviously, but coaching was kind of in my blood from from the early days. So when it became very clear to me that I wasn't going to make a career or make a living as a professional, I just sort of naturally fell into coaching others. And at the time, and this would have been sort of late 80s and early 90s, while I was going to the University of Calgary, I just fell into into a crowd and a group of, of really inquisitive people in the sports space. And in the early days of what you know has now become sort of sport performance or the SNC profession, there was a few of us who were kind of interested in this. And we got together and because there wasn't a strength and conditioning group uh, at the university, we sort of formed one and we offered free strength and conditioning services to all the university teams. And it just sort of, you know, went on from there really, you know, through the, through the nineties, we worked primarily within, within the university confines and then, you know, we started started to get a bit of a name for ourselves, and you know, one of the other guys in, in this group was Matt Jordan, who's I think you know, you, you, well, you've had on now, haven't you? Because I think you just yeah, released yeah. that one. Yeah. And then uh, another good friend of mine, Nick Ward, who now works for us at Altus, um, and a few others. We just had a really good group of of professionals. It's just a a really interesting time in in the S and C space, and a really interesting time for us. So we got a bit of our name for ourselves at the late late 90s, you know, Matt being sort of the academic and the, the strength guy and me sort of being the more practically applied speed guy. So I had a lot of athletes who were coming to me to, you know, to, to try to get them faster. And one of the groups of athletes that was doing that were, were, were bobsleigh athletes. I was based in, in Calgary, like I said, which is sort of a winter sports haven. So while these bobsledders came to me, I started coaching bobsledders and skeleton athletes, as well as track and field athletes and working on speed for, for American football players. And, you know, because we were in Canada and because it's a very winter sports centric place, the only way I could really make a living doing this thing that I now loved, you know, coaching, coaching athletes and trying to get them stronger, bigger, faster, more powerful was in the winter sports. So I kind of became a, a bobsled coach. And I did that for the next 18 years, really, from 1998, 1999, all the way up until I moved over to the UK in, in 2010. So um, one of my primary mentors, Dan Paff, uh, called me up in late 2009 and kind of offered me a job to go over to the UK and, 
help in the preparation of UK um, track and field athletes up until the, the London Olympics. So the day after the Olympics finished in Vancouver in 2010, I hopped on a, on a plane, got over to London and spent the next two and a half years in London. And I really loved that. And that took me to the end of the London Games, at which point sort of search around the world, what was going to be my next, my next step, my next stop, my next job. And uh, kind of, kind of just landed here really, you know, it's uh, spent 28 years in the cold and snow in, in Canada. And then, you know, almost three years in the rain of London. And I wanted to be somewhere that was kind of warm and dry and sunny. So what better place than, than Phoenix, Arizona for that. So that kind of led me to, you know, 2013 now coming on seven years where I've been here and started Altus. Nice. So Derek Evely was in Loughborough, is that right? And then you were down in London with Dan. Yeah, Derek, Derek and Kevin. So Kevin Tyler is uh, the Altus president. He was uh, he was the first of us to, to go over there. So he was he was headhunted uh, in 2008 and he was the first, you know, the first foreigner to head over to the UK and he was head of coaching for UK athletics. And it was actually uh, Kevin who brought in Dan and Derek and also Dr. Jerry Ramajita, who was the, the lead um, performance therapist, and he was based in London with myself and Dan, and um, Derek and Kevin were up in Loughborough. That's right. Nice. So when you went to Phoenix, what, what did you go there as, and how, how was that developed into what is your role now? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really long story, actually. Mm-hmm. So while I was trying to figure out what to do post-UK athletics, a good friend of mine is uh, Scott Simpson. So he actually still works for British Athletics now. He's a, a pole vault coach, and I believe he's the, the British Athletics pole vault lead. Um, but at the time, he was the, the performance director for Welsh Athletics. So it was actually in pretty deep discussions with him about you know having a role within the Welsh Athletics system and perhaps even doing a PhD at Cardiff Metropolitan University. So that's, that was kind of the thing that I was going to do. But I have a friend here who lives in Phoenix. His name's Ian Danny, and he's got a, uh, a performance center here. It's been here for about 15 years. He works primarily with NFL football players. And each spring, probably for the last decade or so, I've been coming here. Well, this is prior to 2013. So from 2003 to 2013 or so, I've been coming to Phoenix and helping him out during his busy times, uh, you know, working with these NFL guys. So while I was trying to make my decision on what I was going to do post-London, I came here just to help, help him out. And, um, you know, while I was here, I, I, I ran into this guy named John Godina. Um, you know, the, the, the people who are listening who, who may be fans of, of throwing events will, will definitely know who John is. John's a, a multiple-time Olympic medalist and, and world championship medalist in, in two events, actually, in, in shot put and in discus. And he had this, uh, this vision of starting this kind of training center, but also in, he saw this big gap in the profession, especially in, in North America, of, of coaching track and field events. So he started you know, his company, which at the time was called the World Throw Center, as a vehicle to coach, sorry, to uh, educate throws coaches, but also as a sort of a, a training center to coach elite throwers so but his vision was always to expand that out into all of the other uh, event groups within track and field so he had heard that I was in Phoenix we sat down we had a conversation 
And within the confines of that conversation, probably 45 minutes, an hour into it, he offered me a job to come and help him build this thing, which was going to be called the World's the World Athletics Center, which uh, you know the vision was essentially kind of two pronged: is to offer a more professional coaching service for track and field athletes because you know the options for them once they be, once they become quote unquote professionals are pretty slim to be honest um and second to that was to offer a professional education service to other track and field coaches you know so from the get-go we've always sort of believed in the co-development of both athletes and coaches which has kind of you know been the string that's that's bound us from from then until today so needless to say my, my options at that point were to head over to cardiff and go back to the rain and spend five or six years doing a PhD. And actually it was a pretty, you know, really interesting opportunity and something I, 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 I thought deeply about or stay there in Phoenix and live in the sun and the palm trees and try and build something super cool. And maybe even while doing that kind of change the sport a little bit. So it was, um, you know, it ended up being a fairly easy decision for me. So I stayed here in Phoenix and, to be honest, never really looked back. Nice. So, how did that? How did the tag of, of CEO? I'm guessing that's a that's also a long story. And between <laughs> between what you've just mentioned and and where we are now. Yeah. Well, I mean, early days it was it was myself and John, um, and then we recruited Andreas Bain. Uh, he was a volunteer coach at Texas A&M University. He's now uh, our hurdles coach and VP performance. We recruited Dan Path, who was my mentor, to come and sort of be at that time kind of the, you know, the main primary uh, name behind it. You know, I had a little bit of a reputation, but and John obviously had a great reputation as a as an as an athlete, but we didn't really have a big reputation as as leaders in the sport yet. So we brought in Dan and we brought in Andreas. In the first year, I think we had seven athletes on board. Uh, I think we had more staff actually than than athletes. It was myself and Andreas and and Dan and another assistant and John and and uh, we had a bookkeeper and seven people <laughs> to train. So it was um, you know we but we grew really quick. The second year we had 27 athletes and then the following year we had 65 and the year after that we had 108 and and by that time it was just getting you know a little bit too chaotic. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing in, in many, many respects from, especially from an operation standpoint, that wasn't my forte. It wasn't Dan's forte. It wasn't John's forte. So, you know, we knew that we needed some, some assistance in, 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 in that area of the business. So we reached out to Kevin Tyler, who at that point was the lead sprint coach at university of Oklahoma. Uh, I thought he would be the perfect person to, to come on board and, and lead us, uh, you know, just give us a little bit more clarity and define that a little bit better and, you know, better understand where we would move towards. So we brought in Kevin and, and then, you know, so we, we kind of divvied up the responsibilities at that point where I became a CEO. He became the president. I was sort of more outward facing, looked at sort of long-term vision where he was more inward facing and, and looked at, you know, day-to-day -day operations, ensuring that we were going to be sustainable and solvent. So, um, you know, that was now, you know, almost four years ago. You know, it's, um, it's been, you know, exciting um, last four years, exciting last seven years. We've made a lot of, a lot of mistakes over the course of that time. But I think now we're doing a, a, a much better job of, of understanding who we are, you know, why we do what we do, you know, what we mean to the, to not only the track and field 
community, but also the, the sport performance community as a whole and understanding our role within that. So it's, you know, I'm really excited about what can continue here over the course of the next, you know, the next decade or so. Nice. So let's dive into that a little bit more. And so why are you there and why you do what you do and the, the kind of long-term vision, like you say, the more outward facing um, portion of, of your role, really. What is what is the vision over the next five to 10 years for Altis? There's obviously been a big, not a shift, but a more visible um, outward facing education, which is like you say, has always been there, but it seems to be super visible now and doing some really interesting stuff. Can you give us an insight into that kind of five or 10 year vision that you've got for for the business? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's, it's, it's a very fair point, Rob. I mean, it, it actually has been a shift. It's, it's in, you know, I'm glad that is visible uh, from the outside. You know, we, we sort of started off as a track and field company that wanted to do some education. And now we're kind of an education company that also does some track and field. I mean, that's the really most simple way to, to, to say it. When we first started, you know, we've got this um, uh, in-house education program that, that, that we're probably best known for, the, the apprentice coach program, where every month that we're coaching people, you know, we're visited by 10 or 15 professionals from all over the world. Now, when we started that program in 2013, eight out of every 10 of the people that would come and visit us were from track and field. And now it's the exact opposite. It's, you know, every, every month now we've got 20, 25, 30 people come and see us. And of those 80 to 85% of them are from other sports, whether it be rugby or, or football or American football or basketball or what have you. And it's, it's, it's less and less track and field. And that, you know, that has been, um, you know, part of our strategy moving forward because, you know, it's, it's, the reality is, is track and field is it's a very, very difficult sport in which to try to operate and sustain a for-profit business within, right? There's just not the money in these, these some of these smaller amateur sports. So we've got to look external to that. But, you know, it's in, in one way, it has been a shift, but in another way, it, it hasn't been because, like I did say, it's always been imperative to us. It's been important to me throughout my career, especially at the stage of my career now, as well as Kevin's career, where we've looked at the parallel development of both athletes and coaches. Um, so that's always sort of been one of the objectives of, of what was the World Athletic Center and became Altus in 2015, right from day one and still is today. So we, we just look now at, you know, how we can better interact and communicate with our community in ways which, you know, which makes sense to them and which, you know, can help lead them forward within their own coaching careers, you know, to the point now, and, you know, so is Kevin, obviously, and so is Dan, and probably the three of us are, are the most outward facing of the, of the people that are, are involved with Altus. You know, we're all over 50 now, right? So what's important to us isn't necessarily the day-to-day -day coaching of athletes in front of us. It's more about coaching the coaches and, and you know, uh, affecting and influencing the entirety of the coaching profession and as well as the sport performance industry. So, you know, that's what kind of gets me out of bed now. And that's, um, I know that's what gets Dan out of bed and what gets Kevin out of bed. Not to say that we don't still really enjoy coaching the athletes. And that's a big part of our job still and takes up four to five hours of every, every day that I'm, that I'm here. But it's the other part is trying to affect wholesale change on, on what is still a, you know, a really immature and growing and young profession and, and industry, you know? So it's, 
I just, you know, to if you, your question was, what does the next five or ten years look like? You know, I wish I knew. Um, I don't know. I really don't because because of the immaturity of this industry and the immaturity of the profession, how technology is changing it, changing as well, and how everything is still so sort of complex and chaotic. And you know, we're just we're, we're not being we're trying not to be reactive to this, but actually lead some of this change. We know that. You know, we've got to do a better job of educating young people through this, you know, or help navigate their journeys through this um, industry because it's, um, you know, as, as, I'm, as I'm sure you see and, and, and all the listeners have, have seen, you know, trying to navigate your way through the coaching profession now is very different than it was a decade ago and two decades, two decades ago. You know, when I was coming up as a coach, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty easy, really. The amount of information that was available to me was, was fairly limited, as it was for every coach. It's probably over 40 or 45. That's very different now, right? So we're just helping to, you know, trying to help younger coaches navigate that chaos. You know, okay, this is, this is what is, you should be spending time on. That you should be ignoring. You know, it's, that's, that's a real challenge. You know, it's, it's, it's hard for us. And, you know, sometimes we're successful at that and sometimes we're not, but hopefully we can continue doing a, a decent job of that in the future and hopefully get better at it. Mm-hmm. One thing that came up in the, the Twitter um, direct messages that I got based on this this upcoming chat that we were going to have, one thing that came up was inspiration and where you look for inspiration. I know that was from a, that was definitely coming from a, a coaching technical point of view, but I think this is, it's really interesting from a business and the education side of things and developing that area of the business, which I think is really interesting. Where do you go for inspiration on that side of the business? And we'll get to the technical stuff in, uh, in a short while, but where do you go for inspiration for the business and the development education system and, and what you include in there, what you don't, how do you, you know, where do you go to make sure you're not adding to the noise, but adding to the, the impact that you can have on the industry. Um, so yeah, where, where do you go for inspiration on that side? Yeah, I mean, that's, there's a lot of depth to that question, Rob. It's, it's a really good one. Um, you know, I think with, with age, often, not always, but often comes wisdom, right? So you're, you're better able to synthesize your way through all of this often disparate and conflicting information. So we see our role as trying to make sense of it all. So first and foremost, that's our objective, is to take these hundred perhaps conflicting ideas and synthesize it to uh, to what is truly important, and where we get the inspiration from that, I think is is maybe twofold, uh, maybe threefold. First, first and foremost, my primary mentor and many other coaches around the world, primary mentor Dan Path. It's what he has always been so gifted at. You know, I first met him in 1995, and right from day one, I mean, it was just it's, it blows me away his ability to take really complex information and reduce it, and I, I use reduce in the best sense of that term, uh, to a sentence or two that makes sense for, to somebody who doesn't have the wisdom or the knowledge that he had. So it's always been the objective of, of not just the company, but, as, but me as, a, as an individual coach as well, whenever I'm speaking with younger coaches. So first and foremost, Dan. Second, uh, a great friend of mine, John Berardi, he built this uh, company called Precision Nutrition which he actually just sold last year. And that's, that was his objective from day one as well. He just saw the noise in the nutritional space and the supplemental space and said, I don't want to be a part of this. This is, this is, this is not, I'm not interested in this 
you know, this, this red ocean where everybody's sort of fighting for that same piece of the pie. So he started his own, his own ocean, essentially. He started this online digital product, you know, precision nutrition um, education curriculum. And, you know, 15 years later, he's, um, he just built an incredible um, company there that, that, that supports thousands and thousands of, of individuals as well as coaches around the world. So it's, I, take, I take a lot of inspiration from what he built as well as how he built it and built it and how he was able to synthesize what is really, you know, often conflicting information. You know, the nutritional space is probably just as bad as the coaching space. And he was able to communi- communicate it in a way which makes sense to everybody within the space, whether they're just starting or whether they've been in it for 10 or 15 years. And that's, that's really challenging. That's the hardest thing for me because I'm used to having conversations with kind of people like me, you know, they're, they've been in, they've been in coaching for five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. We can kind of speak at similar levels. It's really challenging for me to, to be able to communicate my ideas and those ideas that I would have, you know, in conversation with my peers to other folks that may be just starting in the industry. That's, that's a real challenge for me. It's, it remains a challenge for me. It's something I need to get better at. It's something that we have to get better at as a company. And it's something that JB has been able to do, was able to do from almost from day one. So he's been a, you know, a continued inspiration, not only personally, but uh, what he's built through the business as well and how they operate. And third is, is, you know, is Exos. It's, it's, it's the building in which we kind of house ourselves and, and have housed ourselves for the last seven years. We've just been, you know, so, um, so lucky to have this relationship with Mark Verstegen and, and what he's built within this organization at Exos and, you know, been able to look at these guys and how they've gone around, gone about building their systems and, you know, just, how they've how they built it, how they've communicated it, how they've built this company that is so supportive of everyone within the industry, as well as Mark as an individual. And he's just a you know, he's just a brilliant, brilliant, you know, passionate and generous person. So it's uh, you know, those would be not only my sort of three inspirations from a you know building a business standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint, you know, Dan, JB and, and Mark with Exos. Superb. Good answer. Great answer. Um, so, so based on the direct messages that I got on Twitter and some of the, the topics that come in for me to post to you, and I hope I do them justice, it sounded like a lot of the people who were asking questions were from a team sport background. And like you mentioned earlier, there's plenty of people or even more people now who are coming to, to you guys from team sport backgrounds um, as opposed to track and field backgrounds. And one thing that came to me was at the topic around the underpinning characteristics of speed and how that differs, if it does differ, from a, when you're looking at a team, general team sport athlete to a track athlete. So I'd love to get your overview, kind of kind of overview on that, philosophy on that, and then we can use them answers to, to jump off from if that's all right. Yeah, sure. So, you know, to back off a little bit or to back up a little bit, you know, the first question you need to ask is speed a primary limiting factor in the sport in which you perform or coach? And if the answer is yes, then where is it in the in the hierarchy of KPIs within that? And if it is, you know, one of the top three or four or five or 10 or whatever, if you if you determine that that is an important uh, factor in your sport, then 
you know, it's, it's, it's contingent upon you to understand that, you know, as, you know, so we, we have a lot of strength and conditioning coaches that, that come to us. Right. And we, we, you know, I started as a strength and conditioning coach, so I'm, I'm kind of connected to that community and in the strength and conditioning world. And it's, it's getting, it's, it's changing a lot now, but a decade ago, two decades ago, it was all about the strength part of strength and conditioning and very little about conditioning. And it was really only about, within strength, what happened in the weight room. And even within the weight room, it just was just around, you know, for some people, just Olympic lifts or just power lifts. It was very reduced and it didn't really have a great transfer over to what the sport is. You know, the strength and conditioning coach, his role or her role was just, okay, can I get this athlete in front of me stronger or more powerful? And if I can do that, then I have done my job. And I think over the course of the last 5, 10, 15 years, we've, we've begun to think a lot more about transference and the type of work that I am doing with athletes. Is that transferring over to the sport in which they are performing? And that being the sort of the objective rather than backing up with the objective, just getting athletes bigger, stronger, or faster, or more powerful, or what have you. So... And I think, like I said, I think we've seen a bit of a change in that. You know, one of the quotes that Dan has is strength and conditioning coaches seem to have a PhD on the strength end of things, but they don't even have a first grade knowledge of speed, where speed is, you know, probably in most cases, and I'm not, I don't think I'm being controversial by saying this, more, a more transferable skill or ability than strength is to almost every court-based and field-based sports. And if it is more important, if it is more transferable, if it is more, you know, has a greater factor to the, you know, towards the successful performance of these athletes in those sports, then why don't coaches within those sports know more about it? So that's kind of, you know, where I start from. And it's, it's, it's pretty evident that traditionally fitness coaches or strength and conditioning coaches don't know a ton about speed or speed development or mechanics or any of those, you know, those things around speed. So like I said, though, it is changing there is a greater respect for it, but I think it stems from a better understanding around what is the role of the fitness coach or the strength and conditioning coach. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more now. It's, 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 it's become a lot more than just getting athletes in front of you bigger, stronger, or faster, which is, which is fantastic. So, to you know, to get to the, you know, to the uh, nitty gritty of your question, you know, I don't really see much of a difference. Um, the underpinning things that are important to getting athletes fast are important whether whether you're getting them or preparing these athletes to run 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters, or whether you're preparing them to be a professional American football player or, or a British football player or a basketball player, or rugby player, what have you. It's all the same. It's just where in that hierarchy of KPIs do those things exist? So, you know, in, in, in track and field, for example, the mechanics of how an athlete moves down the track is really important. It's, it's a primary factor. It's one of the most important factors that determines whether that athlete succeeds or doesn't succeed. Is it as important in, for, let's say, an off- offensive lineman in American football? No, not, definitely not as important. Is, it, is a wide receiver in American football, is it more important for that athlete to move mechanically sound than the offensive lineman? Absolutely. 
Is it uh, as important for a basketball player? Is it as important for a field hockey player? So you just got to first and foremost ask yourself those questions. Where is it in the hierarchy of KPIs here, the mechanics of how an athlete moves or sprints? How does it, you know, how does it determine the, the success or lack of success of the athlete? So we start from there. So if it is, say, for example, an offensive lineman, I'm not going to spend a ton of time with an offensive lineman teaching him how to upright sprint. That would just be silly, right? I would, be, I, I would coach him enough so he doesn't hurt himself when he has to do these stupid sprints at the NFL combine or what have you. And that would be about it. The rest of the time would be, you know, working on more abilities that are much more important to, for him in his sport, in his position within that sport, and with him as an individual within that position. So we start always with what's important to the sport and then work, work from there. Just based that on that. Overall answer? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I've chatted about this to, who was it? James Wilde, I think, over here at uh -huh. Surrey Sports Park. And why strength and conditioning coaches, and use that as a kind of global term, fitness coach, what scientist, whatever it may be, um, gravitate towards the strength and power area, like you mentioned about Dan having the, you know, mentioned about the PhD in the strength and power, but the, um, uh, like year one or two in 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 the speeds in the speed side of things do you think it's do you think a lot of strength and conditioning coaches see the speed as and this is de definitely not to put words in people's mouths here or pitch in people's minds but almost a bit mythical in how people in track and field have got people fast over time and, and are quite daunted by that side of things therefore have gravitated towards the strength and power because it just makes a little bit more sense to them because they haven't been exposed to them methods in a track and field environment. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's definitely a part of it. I, th I think the primary reason why we bias towards um, the strength end of things is because those strength abilities are much easier for us to measure uh -huh. and therefore much easier for us to justify our positions, our roles within the performance team, as well as much easier to justify the entire relevance of the profession and the industry and the, you know, the, the role of strength and conditioning profession within the sport performance industry, right? If, I, if my role as a strength and conditioning coach is to get athletes stronger, then if, if the athlete cleans 90 kilos, and in three months, he's, he's cleaning 110 kilos, then I have just justified my position within the team. That's very simple, right? Yeah. And that's kind of how the entirety of the strength and conditioning profession has grown up over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. We've justified our roles within it, our, our roles within teams. You know, as long as I do my job, I get the athlete stronger, more powerful, whatever, I've done it. So I, that's how I've justified my individual job, but also enough of us doing that, we've also justified uh, incorrectly, obviously. We've also justified now the relevance of, of this profession within, within the industry. Now that's also because of that, because of that is the way in which we have been able to justify our, you know, our, our, our own sort of positions and our own jobs. That has kind of dictated where we've gone with our studies what we what we study and research in sports science, um, what we test, how we and how we train, how we program, and what type of work that we're going to do within our roles as strength and conditioning or fitness professionals. We tend to, you know, gravitate towards things that we can test well, and thus 
therefore justify what we're doing, right? So it's, it's, it's very, very different from speed. I mean, how do we justify that? That's, 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 it's, it's, it's far more challenging. You know, those, um, you know, the complexities around when, you, when you're talking about, you know, the chaotic system that, that professional sport is, it's really difficult for any of us as individuals within the su support team within that system to justify our own little position within that team. And that's our challenge. That's our challenge as an industry. And that's our challenge as individuals within it. Where, you know, what, what we've traditionally done in SNC is looked at it, you know, just really reduced it into its most simplistic standpoint. Okay, I'm a strength coach. If I get this athlete stronger, I've done my job. And whether that's weight on the bar, whether it's uh, force platform testing, whether it's Nordboard, whether it's uh, position transducers, whatever, however I can justify that the work that I'm doing is preparing the athlete in a positive way, i.e. the athlete is improving on the metrics that I am measuring, then I've done my job. Which is fantastic for you guys as people widen their horizons and look to athletics for, like you say, inspiration um, and can provide the education. So, but, but just, just to back on that first point around kind of underpinning characteristics of speed and been, like you say, been similar between the, the track, the tracks, um, athletes and the, and the team sport athletes are very base level at what point, and this is getting a little bit more in depth on that really, at what point are we moving away from the kind of isolated sprinting at that very core level to a more contextual, um, environment for say a soccer player or a uh, rugby player or whatever that may be NFL uh, athlete. Well, that's the big question. That's the big question, obviously. Right. Um, and it, it just goes back to that question about transparency. Again, it's no different from what we're doing in the weight room. You know, what are we doing in the weight room by doing a power clean, for example, or a back squat or a front squat or reverse hyper or whatever exercise you pick one. Do we do any of those things out on the field? No, we don't do any of them. So those are so, so many generations away from what the athlete is actually performing within the sport. Way, you know, many, many more generations away than actual sprinting, which every court and field based sport athlete actually does. So it, 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 it's funny to me. And very curious to me that we make that argument and we love to make that argument. Technical coaches love to make that argument. Well, you know, my athlete doesn't get upright. He only accelerates. So why are you teaching how to upright sprint? Well, does your athlete, you know, clean, uh, clean 60 kilos off the bar and put it on their, on their shoulders on the field? So why are you getting, to, why are you getting them to do that as well? Right. So it's, it's just, for me, it's, um, you know, people who make that argument, it's a little bit of a straw man for me. Um, I, I think there's uh, a logical error that they're making right from the stand, right from the start. And for me, it's a pretty. It's, it's that being said, it's a very, it's still a very valid question, and it's a question that we should ask. Of doesn't doesn't matter what we are doing. Working back from the sport, we need to be able to justify every piece of the preparation program, whether it's lifting a weight, or whether it's sprinting, or whether it's jumping, or throwing throwing things, whatever whatever it may be that we're doing to you know improve the physical. Uh, capacities of the athlete in front of us we need to be able to justify it so you know it's li like i said before you're starting from the sport and working backwards if you're if you're an offensive lineman in american football we're not going to spend a lot of time sprinting but if you're a striker and you know you're 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 playing in the, in the premiership 
and part of what is important to you is speed, then we're probably going to be negligent if we're not spending a lot of time with you teaching you how to sprint technically or working on that sprinting ability trying to get you faster. And if it become if it is a big part of your preparation, then it is contingent upon us as professionals that are responsible for coaching you guys to hopefully do it the right way and the correct way and teach you how to sprint properly. Now, then the question becomes, you know, content versus context. So you're probably not within the confines of a, of a soccer game or, or a field hockey game or, you know, pick your sport, thinking about your technique while you're actually moving around the field. You're, you might be subconsciously aware of it, but you're de- definitely not generally consciously thinking about, for example, driving your knees forward or driving your knees up or what you're doing with your hands, right? Now, however, I mean, that doesn't mean that you're not, that you shouldn't be working on that from a less contextualized standpoint away from the confines of the game. And what I would say, and my argument is that probably the, the, the more experienced you are, the longer you've been in the sport, the longer you've been moving a certain way, the less time that we as as professionals should spend trying to change that way of moving or quote unquote perfect it or improve that way of moving. But if you're a 12 year old female soccer player and you can, you know, barely move your limbs with any efficiency or force, then it's continuing. It's, it's, It's part of our role to try to teach you how to move properly. And whether that is, is sprinting, whether that's kicking a ball, whether that's jumping, throwing, whatever, that's part of our role. That's part of our, like I said, it's part of our responsibility. So, so, so as I said, I mean, there's a continuum of where, um, you know, the content of a movement versus the context of a movement crosses over and where it's important. You know, if you're a professional uh, uh, footballer in the English Premiership, then how, you know, and you're 30 years old, I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time decontextualizing how you move and working you in a, in a separate environment, isolated environment and trying to teach you how to sprint. But if you're a 15 year old and you don't know how to sprint and nobody's really taught you how to sprint and it has the opportunity then to become your, you know, most efficient natural way to sprint. If I can teach you that way, then I'm going to spend a lot of time with that. So it's, it, 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 again, it all always depends upon, you know, where, you know, who that athlete is, where we're working with them, you know, where they are, what sport they are, what position in the sport that they're playing, you know, so on and so forth. That's, that's just, really, uh, oh, go yeah, on, sorry. sorry. No, no, carry uh, on. I was going to say, that's a really interesting point. So what potential, is a potential damage that can be done in introducing that non-contextual technique work or whatever that may be, sprint work for a, an older more experienced athlete or is it just you feel it's just time lost and it's better you could spend that time better in more contextual environment well yeah i mean if you can if you can spend the time doing other stuff that is that is time better spent and you don't do that then you're making that athlete worse because you've only got a you know a finite envelope of time resources energy available to you Right. So how we use that finite envelope of stuff is really, really important. So if we choose, if we see a 30 year old athlete and he's been moving in a certain way for 15, 20 years and we decide to spend an hour or two hours a week trying to change the way in which we move, 
which he moves, we've just made that athlete worse because that's an hour or two that we could be that could be spent on doing something that's actually you know productive. So for sure, I mean it's um you know it's a really good point. Do you and think I, I, I forgot the first part of your question there? I totally blanked, so I apologize. No, that's fine. That's fine. Do you think as and, and this is this is probably insulting the not insulting but dumbing the intelligence down of, of people in team sports and that's definitely not the, the point but as people get introduced more to the world of track and field and the the drills and what you, what you guys use as a basic as people in team sports get to a, a bigger handle on that do you think we maybe paint all the players whether it be soccer athletes and i'll use that as an example with that same brush to dumb things down to go back to base level even with them 30 year olds because we are at the start of our journey getting into the almost like the track and field world that we're taking our athletes along with us and dumbing that down for them guys rather than making it like you say potentially contextual for the for the older guys but then less contextual for the for the younger ones does that make sense yeah <laughs> kind of let, let me let me see if i can answer that question in a slightly yeah. different way so let me okay. give you an, uh, an example yeah so i played uh, up to a fairly high level um uh, myself uh, i played football sorry like i said um so i played for my entire life and i played um up until 1993 i think was my last last game when i was 24 years old and i was never really the fastest athlete i never you know nobody looked at me and said oh you really got to watch out for this guy's speed but i was okay i was kind of average right and at that time i was already getting really interested in strength and conditioning i quote unquote retired from playing actively got really interested in in the research in strength and conditioning and got super deep into how to get people fast you know it's and 1995 is when I met Dan Path, and I got really interested in speed and track and field. And you know, for for the next sort of five, six, seven years, that was that was my life: is figuring out how to get athletes strong, powerful, and fast. So I understood as much as I could around you know sort of training methodologies as well as the mechanics of that. So you know, what are the most effective ways to get athletes fast and not understanding anything about context you know i wasn't that deep into anything yet i was just my goal was very traditionally as a strength and conditioning coach at the time get athletes stronger faster and more powerful that was it but part of that was also had a respect through my relationship with dan that kinematics played a big part right kinematics was a really important factor to how athletes actually moved down the track or moved around the field. So I, I spent as much time trying as I could trying to understand where kinematics fit into this. Now, make a long story short, in I believe 2000, so it was about seven, six or seven years later, I went back and started playing men's league soccer. And again, a pretty decently high level. I think it was Division One in Calgary. And all of a sudden, and I, you know, I, I obviously kept on training, but I hadn't played soccer in six or seven years. So I had no idea where I was now in, you know, relationship to all of the other players around me. But all of a sudden, now I was the fast guy. And when, you know, when people ask me, well, you know, is speed really that important? Or are you thinking about, you know, uh, sprinting on the field when you're playing soccer? I, I sort of 
I, I go back to this time and I, I remember this really clearly. I've got the ball. I was a, I was a winger. And in this game, I'm, I'm playing left wing. And I've got the ball and I'm coming up to this defender. And I know this defender is pretty slow. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just that, that's the first thought that goes into my brain. Okay, this, guy's, <laughs> this guy's slow. I can easily beat him on the outside. Very so well. I just come up to him. I knock the ball by him and I sprint, sprint around him. And I remember my, my brain just going somewhere else for a split second. And I remember just thinking, okay, put my head down, lean forward and push back and pump my arms. Right. Super simple cues. Right. It's just like very, very simple. You know, I wasn't very you know, complex with anything that I was thinking at the time. This was, again, 1999 or 2000. Knock the ball by him, head down, you know, push back, pump my arms as far as, as quick as I can. A second, maybe a second and a half later, I'm boom, I'm back. My brain is back into the sport again. I pick up the ball. Defender's long gone. I'm no longer thinking about him. I stop. I knock the ball into the. Now this is why I remember it because I knocked it over, and the striker headed it in for a goal. So I always tell that story when they ask me. You know, is you know the the, the ecological dynamics people where they say you know it's always you know a, a, an interaction between you know the, uh, the, the 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 what's going on within the confines of the game. Well, it's not always. I mean, sometimes we use these sort of fundamental skills that we develop in other areas of the physical preparation, whether that's jumping or landing or squatting or all of these basic fundamental abilities that we build. Sometimes we use those fundamentals as kind of metaphors within the complex, within the confines of the game. And that's kind of what happened within, you know, in my scenario there, right? I get the ball, I see the defender, I'm not going to buy him. Boom. I, for a split second, I'm using what I've learned over the course of that last six or seven years as somebody who's got deep into sprinting. Use that almost as a metaphor. And then boom, I'm back into, you know, interacting with the game again. So it's, and it's like, like I said, it's the same with, you know, if I go up, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a wide receiver in American football and I'm, and I'm jumping up and I'm three feet off the ground and I catch the ball. And now I'm thinking, well, okay, I'm three feet off the ground here. I'm, you know, 30 inches or whatever I am, you know, in the air. How am I going to land? And some of this is unconscious and most of it probably is unconscious, but some of it is conscious. Some of it, you're just, okay, I'm referring now back to all of this stuff that I've done, all this training that I've done, how to land properly. You know, if, if, if coaches, coaches over the course of the last five or 10 years have been teaching me how to land this way, and it's just a split second. My brain goes there, uses that as a metaphor so I can safely get back on the ground and then react and get back into the game again. So um, I just wanted to tell that story because I think huh? that kind of uh, answers your question in a, in a bit of a, a roundabout way. Yeah, that, that right back that you were talking about, that was, <laughs> that, was pretty, that was me. That's how I felt with the, with the fast guy going past me, taking two years to turn around and chase him, <laughs> thinking nothing about what I, what I looked like, what I felt, anything, uh -huh. just panicking, just pure panic. That was, yeah, uh, yeah. That, was, that was definitely me. So, I mean, that was, it's, it's, it was really interesting for me, right? Because I was, I was 30 years old at the time. So here's somebody that from the age of 23 to 30, you know, I, I developed this ability to get faster. And I hadn't changed anything else. I just understood how to run faster or how to run better, more efficiently, right? So it's um, – but 
that's all I'd done for six or seven years, right? I wasn't training as, a, as, a, as an athlete within that sport. So it still goes back to you've got a finite amount of stuff that you could work on. Where does speed or the mechanics within speed or whatever else that you're talking about within that big word called speed, where does that fit within your hierarchy, hierarchical list of KPIs? So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Stu. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we start a discussion around teaching sprinting to youth team sport athletes and how that may compare to youth sprinters. So a really interesting uh, part two being kicked off with that. Then we discussed the influence of small-sided games on team sport athletes and how that may affect uh, mechanics and how we can potentially improve that through guided and uh, deliberate sprint training. But just before we do get into part two, I just want to say a quick thank you to some of our sponsors. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by AthleteMonitoring.com, the world's most comprehensive, versatile and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports. So AthleteMonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organisations and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralises the management of wellness, training and performance, medical and testing and administrative data. It also simplifies the interpretation with best practice analytics and evidence-based methods to optimise performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, AthleteMonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organisations and long-lasting successes. To see what AthleteMonitoring.com can do for you, visit AthleteMonitoring.com and schedule a free demo or follow them on Twitter at Athlete Monitor. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and this optimized performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They're also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. So I'm going to add to this. I'm going to... I should list. I should have uh, probably not asked this question now because I'm kind of adding to the fluff of, that I've already put to you already. But um, youth athletes, but I just want to mention this because it was a, another topic that came up, and I want to kind of tick the box and, and say we've had a little chat about it because I think it's really it's going to be really valuable. Youth athletes in team sports, when one of potentially one of the KPIs high up on the list is speed like in many team sports, rugby, football, whatever it may be. When, where, and how, and again, this could go on all night, just this one question, but incorporating speed and speed sessions into 
youth athletes. Where would you start for, for a group of athletes or an individual athlete that has never been exposed to this kind of training before? Where would you potentially start um, just to give the listeners a bit of a, an insight into your mind in this in this scenario? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, it kind of depends on what you're talking about as a youth athlete. Is this an eight-year-old athlete? Is it a 15-year-old athlete? Have they started to specialize yet within their sport? You know, generally what you'll see is if you look at a playground of eight to 10-year-olds running around, most of them run a lot, they sprint a lot, and they're pretty efficient on how they move most. You know, it's, it's, it's probably getting a little bit worse as we, as we play less or our kids play less. But generally, they move pretty good. If you look at that same group eight or 10 years later, now they're, you know, they're 14, 16, 18. Most of them are no longer moving well, right? So it kind of depends first and foremost on what you mean by youth athletes. You know, if, you're, if it's an eight to 12-year-old, you know, you're probably doing enough sprinting within their play already. Now, you may have a few of them are not great movers that you might want to say, okay, twice a week for 10 minutes, we're going to try to work on, you know, making you a little bit more efficient in the way in which you move. But the training, just running around and sprinting and playing is probably going to be enough for them. Now, that might be very different, though, if you're 14, 15 or 16, when, you know, the technical demands of the sport are, are playing a much greater uh, role or of importance relative to some of these other things like sprinting. So, you know, it's a, you know, your 14, 15, 16 year old that is specializing or plus spending a lot more time in small sided games, for example, a lot more technical things. They're having less and less opportunities to actually open up and run. So I would encourage coaches to, you know, if you, if this is your case to just provide them those opportunities to continue opening up and running and sprinting. And it doesn't have to be a lot, right? If you're training three days a week, then it's just, okay, 10 minutes of each of those three days, we're going to sprint. And it's just, you just run that into the, you just, you work that into your warm up. Every day where, you know, every athlete always warms up. That's every, every athlete that I know at every level, at every sport is going to spend at least 10 or 15, maybe 20 minutes warming up. Uh, and the higher the level, the, the longer we're spending. But very, very little of that. You know, I, I go and watch, um, you know, as many premiership games as I can. And the amount of times that these athletes are actually sprinting upright in the course of a 45-minute warm-up is baffling to me. None of them do. None of them. Not one. I, it, it, it totally baffles me why, you know, the fitness coaches are out there and they don't actually sprint. You know, they'll have three or four or five-step bursts or they might do some really sloppy kind of strides. But not once are you actually opening up sprinting when the game in which you're trying to get ready for in half an hour, you're going to do a lot of that. So why don't we do that in your warm-up, you know? So work backwards from there and all of your practices, you know, what do we do in practice? Work back. Okay, we're going to do some sprinting. We're going to do some jumping. We're going to do some heading. We're going to do some passing. We're going to do some change of direction. We'll do some agility work. Okay, that's what we're preparing for. Then we need to design a warm-up that adequate, adequately and effectively prepares the athletes for that. Are we going to sprint? Yes. Okay. So, so we should probably sprint in the warm-up. What does that look like? Well, you know, are we going to do a lot of sprinting today? So we're not having any short-sided games. It's a sort of larger field. Yeah, I'm going to do a lot of sprinting. So maybe I'll put in three or four times 30 meters in the warm-up, you know, with a, with a, you know, a drill in between or, or some sort of exercise in between or what have you. Uh, it, is it mostly short-sided um, 
games today. Yes, okay, well, we're not going to do it. We're not going to open up a lot. So I have to work a little bit more sprinting into the warm-up. So I might do five or six opportunities over 20 or 30 meters, for example. You know, the take-home is, you know, and the important part of that is not how you do it, but that we do it. That we always, you know, understand and recognize that actual opening up and sprinting and running fast is an important part of your sport. If it is, we need to train for that over and over and over again and continue training for it over the course of the entire developmental process of the athlete. And I just think we've just gone too deep into the specialization. We've gone too deep into the technical demands of the sport and we've kind of started ignoring, you know, the capacity demands, you know, the, the strength, the power, the speed, you know, how people actually move. It's uh yeah, that's my little yeah. soapbox for the day. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I spoke to John Green about as well. And he mentioned the overemphasis on small-sided games in academy football. His view was that was potentially hindering the development of speed as they pass through the academy pathway and into the reserve. Well, not reserves anymore, but whatever, under-23s and first team. Would that something that you'd agree with as well? 100%. 100%. 100% agree with that. Yeah. You know, you're just reducing the space. So you reduce the space, you know, we reduce the opportunities to, to move fast and open up and, and you, know, you know, express ourselves over longer and larger ranges and spaces. We, ha- we have to allow athletes the opportunity to do that. You know, it's we, the way in which we do it here is we, we, we look at three different speeds. So slow, uh, medium velocity and fast velocity. We look at three planes of movement, you know, just very simply forward, sideways and backwards. And we look at three sort of uh, arcs, you know, short arc, uh, medium arc and long arc. Long arc being the entire body is involved in the, in the, in the movement. So we're, it's we're opening and closing the entirety of the body. It's basically what we're trying to do when we're sprinting. Um, so we ensure that all three of those in all three of those things are part and parcel of every single time, every, every time that we get together as a group to do something, we go through all nine of those. So sometimes we'll do things slowly. Sometimes we'll go think, things medium. Sometimes we'll do it fast. We'll do all of those three different velocities in all three arcs and all three um, um, ranges. So it's, it's uh, sideways, backwards, and, and, uh, and forwards. So I, I think that's just based, you know, basic good rule of thumb that, that, every coach at every level should, should, should try to, to use to determine what they're going to be doing over the course of the session. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So just moving on into the weight room, and I'd just like to get your philosophy on what goes on in the weight room. And, and first start off with your track athletes, then we'll bring in the team sport guys and see how things differ if they indeed do. So in terms of the philosophy for track athletes as a global um thought process what do you go through when it when it when it comes to um gym work for for track athletes (laughs) (laughs) that's a big question rob um uh, so first and foremost i uh we always start with again the, the game and the athlete as as individuals and as a sport so understanding the athlete is primary so the first question I ask is, why is this athlete in front of me good at what they do? And then I design my program towards whatever it is that they are good at what they do. 
So if the athlete in front of me is good at what they do because they've got really high force producing abilities, then I'm going to spend more time relative to other things closer to when they need to compete well on force producing abilities. Therefore, you know, the, the type of work that I'm going to be doing in the weight room is going to be different. That'll be significantly different from, for example, if the athlete in front of me is really good at what he does because he's super elastic, he's really fascial, he's really skinny, but really bouncy. So I'm going to train that athlete towards those types of abilities. If the athlete is really good because he's really strong, because he produces incredible amounts of force, then I will we'll train that athlete towards that type of work. Now, I, I, you know, I work with elite sprinters, so that's a little bit different than as if I worked for, with 14 or 15-year-old sprinters. If I'm working with a 14 or 15-year-old sprinter, it's, I still ask the same question. Why is this 14 or 15-year-old sprinter in front of me really good at what he or she does, but I'll spend more relative time on trying to fill in the gaps of what they're kind of sucky at? That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So that's the, that's the first question. So is the athlete really good because they're super strong? And if they are, if that is one of the reasons why they're super strong, then I'm going to do stuff in the weight room to try to get them super stronger. If, and especially later on in the season, for example, where I want the athlete feeling really good about themselves. Now, if the athlete is really good, but isn't super strong, so they're really good because of another ability, then I will train them that way, but find, okay, they have some, they have a limiting factor here, but they're super weak. So I may spend some time on that, but that's going to be a long ways away from when they're going to be competing. Because when they're competing, I want them feeling good about themselves, doing things that they're confident in, doing things that they're comfortable with. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that, I'll just jump on that point there. It's something that's come up a couple of, quite a few times in the guys that I've spoken to who've come from a track background, like James, like uh, Jason Heller at your place, um, a few other people. And the, the thought of doing something so the athletes feel good, and especially into the competitive season, how important is that? And what, what kind of role does that play in your thought process when it comes to exercise selection in feeling for the athletes to just feel good? Well, yeah, I mean, let's back up a little bit from that. It's performance is what? Performance is all of these systems combining to produce something. It's not just the physical. It's just not, it's not just the neural. It's not just the, you know, the physiological. It's all of these different things combining. You know, and the governing system of all of that is the brain. So first and foremost, we have to identify that the brain is the most important thing. So, and working back from there is we want the athlete feeling as good, as comfortable, as confident in what they're doing at the time in which we want them competing at a high level as they possibly can. And we want all those skills that they're working on and what they've been working on the last sort of four, five, six, maybe up to eight weeks to be super stable. So if we're spending time in the, you know, in the, that, you know, that last preparation phase prior to say, let's say Olympic games or, um, you know, Champions League final, whatever, whatever it is that you were, you're up, you're preparing athletes for, and you're spending some of that time on things that the athlete is not stable at, then that's going to affect their confidence. It'll affect their mood. It'll affect how they, they, um, they treat training, the, the, what kind of attitude they bring into training, how, what kind of intent they go through. They want to, at that point, be doing things that they are good at, that they're stable at, and then they can go out and express during the course of their 
competition. So it's 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 everything for me. It really is. It's 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 the thing that I, you know, I um I learned probably that you know the, the the real take home that I learned as early as possible from Dan. You know, it's that coaching wasn't just this. Coaching is this, 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 and this. You've got all these multiple balls that you're juggling simultaneously. And for sure, we'll drop a ball here and there, but we've got to understand that there's a lot of balls. And we, it's, our, it's our jobs as coaches is try to understand what all of these balls are doing, how they're interacting, and how all of these balls interact to, you know, to create this performance at the end of the day. And some of us just get stuck on one or two balls. And we get one of we stuck on these one or two balls, and we kind of forget what all these other balls are doing, and we drop them all. But we did a great job of these two balls, but because we dropped all these other balls, the performance wasn't very good. And you know, it's 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 you know a philosophical thing that a lot of coaches um, look at is they see a weakness in an athlete, and they say, if only I could improve this weakness, this athlete would be so much better. So I I, um, I worked with a a speed skate athlete in Canada in the late O's in preparation for the 2010 Olympic games. And in the preparation to the the 2006 Olympic games, he was one of the best um, sprint speed skaters on the planet at the time. He he had the world record. Uh, He'd won, you know, a a number of, of world cups over the course of the four years prior. Now in the year leading up to the 2000, 2006 Olympics, the coaches decided and, and the physiologists decided, well, there's a gap here. I think we can make this, this athlete better if we spend more time doing this. Because he was really good on his first lap. And in speed skating, there's a 500 and there's a 1,000. Basically, you know, 500 is, is one and a little bit of a lap. And a 1,000 is two laps. So the 500 was pretty dominant. The year before, he was even pretty dominant in the 1,000. But he really tailed off a little bit in the second lap of the 1,000. So in the Olympic season, they said, okay, if we can make this second lap better, we're going to spend some time really working on the strength endurance here. He's going to just dominate. And he's, he's just going to crush everybody. Well, you can probably at this point, because I'm telling a story, you kind of guess, you kind of, <laughs> you, you kind of can guess what happened, right? Yeah. He kind of lost his mojo. He lost his top end speed because remember, we've only got finite amount of stuff that we can fit into our little envelope. So by working on, you know, more strength endurance stuff, more stuff around the second lap, that took away from what he's actually made him, him, what made him good. And because you took away stuff that really made him feel good about himself, he started losing his confidence a little bit. He started competing a little bit uh, uh, less well. And then up going to the Olympics, and I think he was sixth and seventh or something, or didn't even medal, where he, he went into that season as the most dominant uh, speed skater over the course of the previous, you know, quadrennial. So it's just, uh, you know, a little lesson for, you know, for when we're thinking about, you know, when to work in strengths and when to work in weaknesses. We've got to be really careful, you know, where we spend time working on things that athletes aren't very good at. Because remember, if you're doing something that you're not very good at, how does that make you feel emotionally, psychologically? And if you spend, if you just go into every training session and you're just doing things and you just leave it, man, I sucked. I sucked today. This is really hard. I'm really, you know, you're getting down on yourself and that spirals and it just, you know, that self-talk becomes overly negative over the course of time. And you can just become a, you know, a totally different person. Now, like I said, that doesn't mean to say that we can't spend time on doing things that 
are you know limiting to our overall long-term development but we've got to be really careful about how we organize them into our training mm-hmm. so transference is obviously a huge thing for you guys and for everyone given the limited time that coaches have got with their athletes but what's the process you go through in terms of identifying exercises that you believe are going to have the biggest transference onto onto the track in this case and obviously there's similar process whether it's a uh, team sport athlete what goes through your head in trying to zone in on maximizing that? Uh, now, are we speaking specifically to what we're still doing in the weight room? Correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so part of that is just experience and, 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 you know, I, I don't get this opportunity anymore. Uh, I wish I did. Uh, um, I'm really jealous of the, of uh, the Stuart McMillan from 20 years ago that had 300 athletes that he could just play with every year. You know, it was, that was such a big part of the development of myself and Matt Jordan and a few others up in Calgary that, you know, we had access to, to literally hundreds of athletes that we could put into little boxes and play and, you know, do these trial and error experiments with where, okay. And, but over the course of that time, we figured out so much about what can transfer and what can't, you know, and, and now I've got, you know, I've got 10 athletes that I'm coaching this year and all 10 of them hope to go to the Olympic Games. So it doesn't give me much of an opportunity to trial and error or anything. So, so first and foremost, it just kind of comes from experience, my own personal experience, the experience of, of the experiences of many of my colleagues in, in track and field, the experiences of many of my mentors in track and field. So we know that, for example, that, you know, a heavy back squat, there isn't a high level of transference between heavy back squat and, and running fast. It may seem uh, that may be surprising to some of your listeners. <laughs> Hopefully, it's not just, at this I hear, point. I can hear the guys falling <laughs> off the chairs. Because, <laughs> like, it's it's you look at the eight finalists at the Olympic Games, and you ask yourself, okay, how much can these guys back squat? And here's part of the problem: like, uh, so many of of strength and conditioning professionals' experience in the sprints goes back to what Ben Johnson did because his coach was very active on social media, did a great job of pushing out, you know, all of the experiences they did. And they look at Ben Johnson and they hear the story, you know, I had the 600 pound back squad the day before 1988 final, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of become, you know, the, the bedrock of their understanding of the relationship between strength and speed, where he was an, an anomaly, right? He was, he was a, an outlier. Is you look at the eight, the eight guys who are in the final in Rio, there isn't a, there isn't a single one of those um, sprinters that could have full back squatted over 150 kilos. Not one. I can I can guarantee you. You know, I had one of the I had I had one of them right. I had the bronze medalist, and and he couldn't back squat 60 kilos. So it's um, you know I had another kid in 2015 in Naso Jabudwana, who's you know 140 pounds who. Who you know? I've never. I, I would wouldn't even dare put that much weight on his back because the guy is so frail, right? So it's it's understanding first and foremost that strength, as we typically traditionally define it in the weight room as load, is not transferable. That does not transfer. That doesn't. Now some abilities within that governing strength ability do. So eccentric rate of force development, for example, that's kind of important. So you'll find some exercises that you can do in the weight room to help develop that ability within the strength ability that transfers a lot better. So that's, that's kind of the thing that I figured out, uh, you know, with, with the help of Matt and others 
in in the 2000s. And part of that was, you know, there's a few things that happened actually in, in the, in the, over the course of a couple of years. Uh, I was I was on tour with the U.S. bobsled team, and one of the Swiss bobsledders at the time was a guy named Werner Gunther. Now I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of your listeners have seen the Werner Gunther YouTube tapes. I'm sure you've yes. seen them as well. Right? Yes. You see this massive beast of a man just <laughs> jumping around like he's he's one of the most impressive athletes that anyone has ever seen. Right? These tapes are incredible, and I encourage any of you guys who are listening to this to Google Werner Gunther and then just go to the YouTube and, and, and spend an afternoon or two watching these incredible tapes because they're, they're super impressive. Well, I, I got the chance to, to watch this guy train over the course of a winter and um, he didn't speak very good English, and, but his coach was there. I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Um, P, PJ, or, but I'm, I'm totally blanking. And he spoke, he spoke a little bit of English and I got to pick up a little bit. I was kind of shy. I was young. I was new. I didn't really talk to them much, but I saw the kind of work that they were doing. Um, at the same time, or around the same time, uh, this was the early days of the NFL Combine, and there's a guy who went into the Combine who just lit it up. His, guy, his name was Adam Archuleta. He was, a, he was an American football player from ASU. And he ended up, he, I think they thought he was going to be a late round pick, and he ended up being a second round pick, I believe, because he did so great at the Combine. His 40 was good, his bench was good. He had all these, you know, these metrics that tested out of, the, out of the roof. And because of this, ESPN did this little this expose on him and his training and his, uh, and his trainer and his trainer's name was Jay Schrader. He's the guy that's actually based here in Phoenix. I think, I think he still is. And they did some kind of different stuff. You know, a lot of sort of, you know, drop catch work, you know, so, you know, say bench press at 50% of your RM, but they're releasing the bar and catching it before you hit your, before it hits your chest, for example, or doing pull-ups where they've released the bar and catch. So they had this really overloaded, fast, eccentric component as, as a part of their strength training. At the same time as well, um, you know, the, um, uh, there's a paper that came out from Dietmar Schmidt-Bleicher talking about the, the strength, uh, uh, sorry, the stretch shortening cycle. And what he really found with, within this research was it was the stretch that was the most important. It wasn't the shortening. It was, a, it was the first S in the SSC. So, you know, it, basically what he was saying or what I took from that, if I, if I remember correctly, and this is 20 years ago now, so I may not remember correctly, but it was rather than, you know, it was, it was, more important, if you look at, okay, we've got a finite amount of uh, uh, energy available to us now. So we can choose to, say, do hurdle hops, or we can just choose to doing depth landings. We can probably do more depth landings if we don't have to worry about the concentric component, the second S, than we can full hurdle hops. So it should be a little bit more efficient. So I took these kind of these three, di three different things. And I started working with my with the athletes I was coaching on what I eventually termed reflexive eccentrics, which is taking a weight at somewhere between 40 and 65 to 70 percent of their RM and then dropping explosively into a catch position. So whether that be a squat, you know, we start with a if you've got an athlete that does uh, 200 kilos for three reps on a back squat. You know, they put 100 kilos on the bar and they drop into a half squat position, say, three to five times and just really focus intently on stopping and controlling and then you know, as, as quick through that eccentric portion of the, uh, of the lift as he possibly can. This became a significant part um, of my sort of training methodology over the course of the next decade and has remained so since. Um, so for me, that is 
the probably the part of the work in which we do in the weight room that has the most transfers. And then we just try to identify the specific exercise that that type of work transfers over the most for each individual athlete. And that's where I think when Jason talked to you about this as well, right? We categorize athletes upon the way in which they move, right? Are they double leg or single leg dominant? And are they push dominant or pull dominant? So if we've got an athlete, for example, who is a double leg push dominant athlete, then we will do sort of a lot more double leg squatting movements. So those reflexive eccentric squatting movements would be, you know, with a bar on the back and dropping down into a squat, where if you've got an athlete who's a single leg puller, then the, then the exercise that we'll be doing more in the weight room would be, say, for example, a single leg RDL or a single leg RDL reflexive eccentric, where we're sort of stopping, we're dropping the bar and catching it on one leg prior to it hitting the ground, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. So how are you, how, and I might have gone through this with Jason, I, I, can't, I can't remember, I don't think we did, but how do you book it them? guys into them um into them for buckets <laughs> good, good question so this is how we do it now um i watch them okay now that's yeah that's not a good answer for a young coach because a young <laughs> coach doesn't have the experience and the eye to see okay this is how this athlete moves but i'll actually challenge you know uh, coaches to do this and i do during our excuse me, our ACPs when they come, if they, because they ask, they always ask that same question. How do you bucket them into that? How do we categorize them? I said, well, watch your athletes, watch our athletes move. And you tell me if you think that person is posterior chain dominant or anterior chain dominant. And a nine out of 10 can get that right. That's the easy one, right? If a guy's got a big back, big glutes, big hamstrings, big calves, long Achilles, he's almost certainly going to be posterior chain dominant. He's a, he's a puller, right? He moves around the, the planet, sort of pulling himself around. He pulls himself down the track, He kind of pulls him, pulls his way around the field where if, you know, the, on the other side of the spectrum there, if you've got a guy who's got a, or, or, a, or a gal who's got big, you know, big chest, big quads, you know, big biceps or sorry, big triceps, big shoulders, and it kind of bent over the waist maybe, then, you know, chances are that athlete is going to be a pusher. They use their quads to push their, push their way around the planet, their anterior chain dominant. So that's, first, you know, that's pretty easy. You know, most, most, um, most coaches can see that. Uh, prior to that and prior to actually watching people, I used to just tell coaches to ask the athlete, what exercise would they prefer? Would they prefer if I gave you the choice to do a squat or a deadlift, which one would you choose? And if you choose a squat, then chances are your anterior chain dominant. And if you choose a deadlift, then chances are your posterior chain dominant. And that's, that also works probably nine out of 10 times. Some of the, some of the athletes don't know, or they'll, they'll, you know, they'll just, they won't give you a real good answer. Then we have to go to plan B, which is sort of watch them move for a little while. Um, but most of them can choose one. And most of the time they're actually correct. And single leg or double leg, you just, it's the same question. Okay. So now once you've got an exercise, whether it's single leg or double leg, would you like to do that on one leg or would you like to do that on two legs? And they're always going to choose the one that they're best at. And they're best at it because that's their bias. And like I said, nine out of ten times that works. So is there any? And if, and if it doesn't work, we just watch them move. You know, we just we just give them a double leg movement, give them a single leg movement, and whatever they feel more comfortable with, whatever they look more comfortable with, and then we plug that back into our heuristic about moving towards developing towards our strengths. So within that quadrant, then okay, we've now identified, for example, that this athlete in front of me is a single leg puller. 
I will work towards doing single leg pulling movements. And I will work away from doing double leg pushing movements. So in the start of the year, for example, I'll spend more time relative to the to single leg stuff on double leg stuff. But when I want the athlete feeling good about themselves, I need to ensure that they are doing things that they are good at, that they're com comfortable with, that they're confident in, that makes them sort of that, that interacts with their psychology in a positive way. So is there any other assessments profiling that you do, that you guys systematically go through to to book it your athletes or is that the is that the main area that you just spoke about there that's the primary one in the weight room so okay. the, the primary the primary one in the weight room is is whether they push pull single leg or double leg you know the obvious ones are obviously training age and you know how long they've been training how comfortable are they with some of the exercises you know it's um uh, a, a secondary one, which is still really important is how do they, again, starting from why is the athlete really good at what they do? Are they super stable at big open shapes, like big arc? Are they a big arc person or they're a small arc person? You know, are they really, you know, we talk about fascially dominant rather than muscularly dominant, right? So if you've got somebody who's really good and stable at big open shapes, then that's the type of work we will work towards in the weight room. So when we're, for example, making a decision around whether the athlete's going to be doing clean grip snatch or clean, one is sort of medium chain and one is long chain. One is full foot to hand above head, the snatch, and one is just foot to shoulder, the clean. So, okay, this athlete is really good at sort of medium chain work. And that's kind of why he's fast. He's not super stable if I, if I ask this athlete to open up into bigger you know, more expressive shapes. He kind of gets, un it gets discoordinated a little bit. So, but he's really good at kind of smaller shapes, you know, so I'll spend more time working towards that type of movement in the weight room where somebody who's like, say, for example, an, an, an Anasso Jobadwana, like who I mentioned before, super tall, really skinny, fashionably dominant guy who's really good at, you know, long chain work. So overhead back um, med ball heaves, for example, are really good with him. Underhand forward heaves, you know, shorter chain, medium chain, really bad. Snatch, really good. Cleans, really bad. So that dictates where we go with things, right? Again, just look at the athlete in front of you, ask why he's really good from a number of different perspectives, and then how you categorize it is, is totally up to you. So when it comes to assessments, profiling to, to guide what you do on the track, is there anything specific that you go through systematic with all your athletes on that side of things yeah that, that's that that is a, a whole another kettle of fish as they would okay. say um that's that's the biggest challenge in this sport is something that track and field hasn't done a good job of at all uh we haven't been able to really do a good job of quantifying load even though the the you know the sport is so so old you know especially relative to to the strength of strength and conditioning field we don't really know what it means. We don't really know, you know, generally what neural load or intense load does to a system and how that changes over the course of time, depending on, you know, who you are or, or inter-individually as well. We just, we just don't know, right? So it's, we kind of have some guidelines that, that, that we helps govern where we go. And we try to find out as much as we can over the course of time through mostly trial and error. Uh, what best works for each individual, 
but they're they're super generic guidelines at this point and it's really challenging it's one of the it's one of the things that we're trying to do a better job of here and one of the reasons why we started the altus living lab and brought in robin thorpe thorpe and and matt tome to try to help us better define what load is how to quantify load in the track and field athlete so as far as i know one of the first groups on the planet ever for example to use a gps unit on sprinters yeah so we're being, we've, that. We've, yeah we've been you know we've been tracking their load over the course of the last you know seven months now um it's, it's you know it's, it's not informing what we're doing right now because this is a new thing and it's an olympic season so it, i was really careful that this didn't become kind of noise in the in the machine as you would um but it definitely will i think you know I've, I've been looking at some of the data it's really interesting um and i think it's going to inform not only what we do in the future but what track and field community does in, in the in the future i don't think that you know a lot of it has surprised me right so a lot of the time for example that we spend on the track so much of it is sub 78 percent you know well over 90 percent of the time that we spend on the track is is less than 78 percent and then it's then the next question is is what each individual where should they be spending a majority of their time when they are actually doing intense work and what i feel is i think each individual has kind of a sweet spot of where they should be spending their time or their, or their intense time I think there's some athletes need to really push themselves and they, they need to sprint at, for example, 98% to get any sort of adaptation on maximum velocity, where I think other um, athletes can sprint to say 92 to 95% and get the, those same adaptations because, and because it is a little bit submaximal, they can spend more time there. Uh, I think there's other athletes for that, for example, could spend more time at 88 to 91%. And because that is, less relative intensity again they could probably spend more time there so you've got this you know this um kind of linear equation between volume and intensity there uh, again based upon where the athlete feels the most comfortable what makes that athlete good at what he or she does for, i have a you know a british 200 meter sprinter jody williams for example if, if i did maximum speed work with her so if we did for example three by uh, 60 meters with 10 meters, uh, 10 minutes recovery, and that's a that's a pretty typical, you know, max speed session. That would she, that that would crush her, totally crush her. She'd be useless for three days. Where other athletes can can just laugh at that and come back the next day and be fine. But she could do, you know, five by 200 off of five minutes in 91 percent and be great and have some great adaptations from that. Or, you know, if you're looking at still, you know, I don't want to compare apples and oranges there. Let's, so let's go back to the maximum velocity session, three by 60. She could do say six by 60 with five minutes rest at rather than 98%, do them at 94 and 95%. And her adaptations would be significantly greater at that than it would be at 98% for the same ability within that speed. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's really interesting. Um, and like I said, at this point, it's kind of been trial and error, but um, hopefully using a lot of this data that we're tra we've been tracking over the course of this year, we can better define what that means going forward. So it's not just a, a, trial, and error, a trial and error as we move. And hopefully this year is actually Olympic year. Cause that may, you may, you may know more than me, but I'm guessing that may be in doubt right now. Yeah, I mean, as as we stand here today, we're about four months four months out, and um, yeah, I'm I am not 
uh, optimistic. Let's just put it, let's just put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a real shame, but uh, you know, it's there's more important things in the world right now than than training for Olympic games. Absolutely, and one important thing is that I let you go in the next 15 minutes so uh so you can get on with your day so what i'm gonna do i'm just gonna i'm gonna thank you for your time Stu, and um i really appreciate you coming on and, and apologies for the hounding but I'm, I'm glad it worked and got you finally got you on but anyone that wants to know more about what you do at altis altis itself anything we've spoke about today where's the best place to for people to reach out uh altis is uh altis a-l-t-i-s dot world not .com, it's .world, altis.world. Um, I'm fairly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot. Let's just say that way. I'm quite active on Twitter, not so much on Facebook or Instagram. My Twitter name uh, is Stuart McMillan, one, S-T-U-A-R-T, McMillan, one. So just so you can get a hold of me on there anytime. Happy to talk to anybody Super. about anything. Absolutely. An activity may go up in the next week or two, three, four, five, with, uh, yep. with the current situation. So plenty of time yeah. to chat. I think you're right. Yep. Well, thank you very much, Stu. Really do appreciate it. And um, yeah, thank you for coming on and we'll, we'll know that. Keep in touch. Rob, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, mate. Thanks, mate. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to episode 286 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Stu. So big thanks to Stu for giving up his time in this forced period of downtime. Uh, it was great to chat and uh, always a pleasure to speak to him and great to get that on record finally. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, to AthleteMonitoring.com and to Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. So you may find yourself with a few more hours of uh, hours available for CPD. So make sure you check out the back catalogue of the podcast. So all of the back catalogue can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and at strengthofscience.com. So thanks again for tuning in, and I will speak to you next week. <laughs>